0: Stand up, stretch.
1: (laughs) Stretch your orange
0: and everybody's kind of,
1: oh. I don't want you to go
0: to sleep on me.
1: Thank you. My
0: ego is so fragile if you go to sleep on me, I'm devastated. My name is Peter, and I am powerless over alcohol. Hi Peter. Hi family. I am so grateful to be here this afternoon. You just can't believe how grateful I am. Before I forget it, I should tell you that I am a 19-year member of the Worldwide Fellowship of al oh, wow.
1: <clears throat>
0: Unfortunately, no one ever wants to hear my Al-Anon story. after the meeting I'll share it with you. It's really a very remarkable, stimulating story. Inspiring too. One of the reasons I'm so grateful to be here today is that uh, my beloved spouse Dawn, whom you'll hear tonight, uh, the woman for with whom I have been privileged to spend forty two long years. Forty-three. She just pointed out to me.
1: <laughs>
0: Sorry, Don. Uh, I'm. She and I have had the privilege uh, to have begun our recovery um, over 40 years ago, and uh, just in time, I should say. And for many, many years, she and I have had the privilege of carrying the message all over the United States and Canada and. Islands out in the Atlantic Ocean and Bermuda and other places. And it's been a marvelous, marvelous experience to have shared our recovery with others. But even more important, to have had you share your recovery with us. Due to my emphysema, uh, for the last couple of years, I have had to uh, more or less give up uh, the circuit because it's just too much of a hassle oxygen on the airplane and blah blah. You know, it's just a hassle. So this is the first time in over two years that Dawn and I have had the privilege of carrying the message, and I'm just So grateful. So, <laughs> grateful. so I thank the committee for asking us, and I thank them also for that marvelous basket that they put in our room. Thank you so much. I just have a heart full of gratitude. I'm having a gratitude attack. You know, <laughs> you know, as we, uh, as we uh, came, uh, we live in Reston, Virginia, and uh, as we came uh, through Western Maryland yesterday and came through, got in the area around Cumberland, I was thinking about the fact that 100, and maybe 150 years ago, uh, my mother's forebears had been in slavery in that in this area. For all I know, even the ground we're on right now may have been where my forebears were slaved. And, uh, and I still have some distant relatives uh, I've never met in Cumberland, dating from that period. But the point is that uh, eventually they were, they were freed. And uh, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because as a result of these well-suggested steps. I, too, have been freed. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that I have been... And more important, if it hasn't happened to you yet, you, too, can be freed. You, too, can be freed. So if you're, you know, uh, whether you're AA or Alateen or somewhere in between, it doesn't make any difference. If you need recovery, please know that you deserve recovery. And why do you deserve it? Because God loves you. God loves you and loves me as if there was no one else in the world. God's love is so extravagant, it just slops all over us, you know. (laughs) know, And it's there for you. And the only thing that prevents God's love from reaching me and impacting on my life is me. Because, you see, essentially, the problem with me is not alcohol. The problem with me is me. I'm the problem. And, you know, when I first came to AA, I could not understand for the life of me why they had 12 steps. I figured the first step ought to do the job because that's the one that deals with my drinking. But then I stuck around long enough to understand that my problem being me I need those other 11 steps to do something about me, to begin the slow, often painful process of recovery, of becoming what my higher power wanted to have happen in my life. That's good news. That's good news. And if you don't leave this room with anything else in your mind, please bear in mind you heard this guy, this old beat-up geezer with the oxygen tank tell you, that God loves you, that you deserve recovery. But the recovery comes at a price. Now, you know, a lot of people in AA, uh, and I suspect i to, come in, you know, if I can get in recovery, you know, I can, get a, I can get a better job. Nothing wrong with getting a better job. It's great. Or I can keep the job I've, I've got or I can get the job back I had. You know, all, those are, all of which are very worthwhile Objectives. Or I can get a mansion in McLean or or Potomac or somewhere. Or I can get a, a Mercedes if I can just stay sober. Or I could trade in my present lover or spouse and, and get a trophy lover or spouse. I won't comment on how the. But that is not what this program is all about. This what this program is all about. You see, I believe, and it's abundantly clear in the literature, that the reason I am sober today is because God requires me to give love and service. In other words, the purpose of these programs is love and service. Love and service. Not fame and fortune. Love and service. I heard Laurel this morning echoing that thought when she talked about being an instrument. And uh, I like, uh, uh, however, I like the translation that Bill used in the 12 and 12 where he said, make me a channel of thy peace. Channel. You know why I make that? You know, when I was a kid, I grew up all over the Midwest. My father was a, an alcoholic Methodist minister <laughs> and quite a combination. So we moved a lot. We moved a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm I don't i I'm 72. I don't know if anyone else. But back in those days in the Midwest, people had parlors in their houses. You only went in the parlor for a funeral. Someone died in the family or, or the preacher was coming or something, you know. And everybody had mottos on the wall. And in our parlor was this motto that said, make me an instrument of thy peace. So when I came to AA and I got exposed to the 11th step and it said, make me a channel of thy peace, And I could not understand the difference. Then it has come to me slowly that, for me, an instrument is something that's shiny and ostentatious, you know, it attracts a lot of attention, an an instrument. But a channel, a channel is something through which something important flows. Make me a channel of thy peace so that the grace of God... Recovery, peace, love, service, forgiveness, mercy, joy. All of these things may flow through me. When the Potomac River is at flood, you can't see that channel. You can't see it. The channel's anonymous. All you can see is what's being carried in the channel. I think that's what God wants me to try to be a channel. You know, not to get the attention off of Peter Crawford, and put the attention on what's flowing through me. You know, you know, get left to my own devices. I would like you to think that I am the guru. <laughs> you know, I would like you to think, God, we heard this guy up and up at Wispen. He was fantastic.
1: This guy,
0: he was so profound. I like it. That's what I really like. But you see, that's not recovery. That's not what this program is all about. What this program is all about is that, as someone once said, you, we went to, up to uh, Wisp and we heard a beggar tell other beggars where he found the bread. That's what this is about, folks. This beggar is telling other beggars where he found the bread. You know, we close these meetings with the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, you know, uh, we get to the one line that says, give us this day our daily bread. And by that time, you know, it's the end of the meeting. And I'm thinking about I've got to drive home and, or I've got to speak to Charlie about leading the meeting next week or I've got to speak to Susie about the literature or whatever. So I'm, not, I'm just kind of mouthing these words. Next time you close a meeting, think about the import of those words. Give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we are not talking about Wonder Bread.
1: <laughs>
0: they're talking about the bread of mercy, and the bread of love, and the bread of forgiveness, and the bread of sobriety, and the bread of serenity, and the bread of peace. And the higher power is saying, whichever kind of bread you're in need today, I can give you a slice if you ask for it, and you keep coming back. And the great prophet of the 20th century, in one of his eloquent sermons, said, our responsibility is to keep the bread fresh. Because you never know who's going to come through that door and need a slice of that bread. Keep the bread fresh. And that's why I keep coming back. Because I need to keep the bread fresh. Because if I let the bread get moldy or stale... It won't do anybody any good. It says on page 164 of the big book, to keep it, you've got to give it away. But you can't give away what you haven't got. To keep it, you've got to give it away. But you can't give away what you haven't got. And so that's why I'm here today, trying to keep the bread fresh for me. For me and for you. Because my need for that bread is as great today as it was the first day I walked in these rooms, and I need to remember that i need to remember that let me just tell you very quickly uh something about my uh background as i said I was born seventy two years ago in detroit and uh, uh my father was a a Methodist minister he was a <coughs> eloquent preacher and he was a very uh <coughs> he was a very uh, distinguished looking man he's very tall and and handsome and and he Eloquent speaker and and uh, he dressed he just dressed fantastically. The whole family was in rags, <laughs> but he was always dressed beautifully. And he he justified that because he's a preacher, right? He's got to meet the public anyhow. Uh, he I, and I can remember I, I, he was he would just abuse me. He would uh, on uh, I remember on Sunday nights. This is back before Ed Sullivan closed-down churches on a Sunday night. Uh, uh,
1: they, they would have, uh,
0: they'd have Sunday night services, and we lived in a parstage next to the church, and I could hear that. We, we'd be listening to Charlie McCarthy on the radio, and I hear the organ at the church playing, the doxology, Bless be the tie that binds," and I knew that church was, was over, and I would start trembling because I knew that in a few minutes my father would come home from church, and his work week was over, and he would start drinking. And once he started drinking, he would begin. became abusive, and he would start beating up on me. I was the oldest kid, and my mother and my younger siblings. And he took particular delight in beating up on me because in those days, if a man got a young woman pregnant out of wedlock, he had to marry her, and he'd gotten my mother pregnant. And he had to marry her, and he resented that bitterly. So that every time he looked at me, he was reminded of the fact that his life had been impacted by me. I didn't know this then, but... And so he'd come home, and he'd start beating on me. And then he would drink all day all day Monday, which is his day off. And then Tuesday, he'd get himself together and go back out in the street with his Hamburg hat, and his gorgeous clothes and he was the good reverend and the family would be in shambles and you know what I adored that man I adored that man I remember sitting in the church I remember particularly the year that he was 33 sitting in the church looking at him upon the pulpit preaching and saying Jesus was 33 and somehow I had Jesus and my father this is the same man that a few hours later would be abusing me. So uh, my mother was uh, in those days was pretty passive, and she didn't. She had her own bag of problems, emotional problems, and it was very difficult for her. And she was given to um, emotional uh, turmoil, and she used to talk about suicide packs, and telling us kids, let's put our heads in the oven and turn on the gas, and we would just be hysterical. We'd be hysterical. It was it was really a bad scene, and. uh I remember just making it an important discovery for me during that period. I found out that if I had been beaten up, or we'd gone through one of those hysterical scenes, that if I could make it to the bread box and get a piece of bread, somehow I felt better. And uh, uh, eventually I learned that food was my, became my drug of choice. So that any time I had it was any kind of distress or emotional difficulty. If I could just get some food, somehow I felt better. And I began to depend on food. And uh, these are back in the days when you could take, they had these day-old bakeries. You know, you could take a quarter and go to the day-old bakery and come out with an armload of stuff. You know, and that's what I would do. And and uh, I remember my mother used to drink tea before she went to bed every night, and she'd put her a teacup on the on the sink, and she, there would always be that much sugar at the bottom of the cup. And I remember waking up in the morning, my first thought would be getting down to the kitchen and getting that sugar. So food became my drug of choice because food became a barrier between me and pain, a barrier between me and reality, a barrier between me and the facts of life. And I, uh, I was a very, I was an excellent student. Despite all this, excellent student, and I was getting double promotions and all that. And one of the reasons was I was a avid reader, and I had retreated into reading for the same reason I went into food because reading allowed me to escape reality. You know, when I was reading about uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn or or uh, Robinson Crusoe, I could be with Robinson Crusoe on that island and get, a, and I wouldn't be in that situation i lived in and so i relied on books to help me escape reality but also that worked out and well because i became able to become a very good student and i was getting double promotions and i was in a, i was in the seventh grade and i was nine years old i was really flying high but my life was a wreck uh, i was a, a emotional uh, uh, i was extremely fearful Fearful. And uh, I'm dwelling on, on this phase of my life uh, because it, I think it's, it's, it's important, at least to me, but it, it, I want you to see the seeds <clears throat> that were planted in my life. And so anyhow, uh, you know, I was not a good athlete. Nobody, when they chose upside to play baseball, nobody wanted me on their team because uh, I couldn't hit, I couldn't catch, I couldn't, I was just a terrible athlete. So I, uh, we, and plus we moved. We lived in about, every year we moved, and we lived in about 12 cities in Ohio, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Kentucky. But By the time I was 15 years old, we moved almost every year. So every year, I was a new kid at the school who had to fight his way into the, you know, hierarchy. And this was, these are the Depression days, and in those days, if you were poor, you looked poor. You know, today everybody's got blue jeans on. You don't know who's poor, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, if you were poor, you looked poor because there were patches on your clothes and there were holes in your clothes. And there were, uh, the holes weren't put there on purpose, like.
1: <laughs> I went to
0: Chicago and ended up working in a flop house, And, uh... The beds were 25 cents a night, and beds with springs were 30 cents a night. And uh, uh, these guys that lived in the flophouse uh, were all, uh, they had one objective to get a bottle of Yaki Doc. Now, Yaki Doc was a, uh, a, a, a moonshine in Chicago that cost 50 cents a pint. And these guys all had push carts, and their objective was to collect enough rags and metal and other scrap to raise 50 cents plus 30 cents for their bed and uh and then they come back to the hotel and knock themselves out and they lay in the lobby of the hotel and they lost control of their bladders and their bowels and there I am looking at this thing and saying to myself I will never I will never never get myself in that position it was awful to see all these men laying around And, uh, you know, I uh, went back home, and the very next spring, I was at school, and a kid walked up to me with a bottle of muscatel wine and offered me a drink. Let me tell you something, folks. I took a drink of that muscatel wine, and all of a sudden, this shy, backward, tongue-tied, frightened kid... I became seven feet tall,
1: I mean I became cool,
0: I became sophisticated and witty and charming and handsome and that was dark gable, <laughs> you know, all because of this Muscatel wine. And I said to myself, this is it, this is it, and I was off to the races, now I had discovered alcohol. And from then, for the next 15 years, alcohol and me. I uh, uh, went in, uh, the next year I was 15, this was 1942, I finished high school, the United States was in, in World War II, they weren't checking birth certificates very carefully, uh, so I went off to war, I went down to the Navy recruiting station, put my age up, went off to Great Lakes and became a sailor and ended up at sea and was aboard a couple of ships that were torpedoed and I, Came back from the war. I was 18 when the war ended. Came back home to Detroit. By this time, my mother and father had broken up. I tried several things, one of which was to go to college under the GI Bill at Wayne State University in Detroit. And I went to Wayne State, and whereas I'd been so smart in in high school and so forth, when I got to college, everybody was smart. (laughs) Everybody was smart. And I was overcome with self-centered fear. And I started stopping at the bar between classes. Then I started stopping at the bar after classes. And then I started stopping at the bar before classes. And then I started stopping at the bar. Next step was to get a job in an automobile plant. And I was uh, making, uh, I worked for Briggs Manufacturing Company, which made uh, parts for Chrysler and Packard. Remember Packard, anybody? And uh, I'm working there, and uh, had a big mouth. It was on a night shift, I had a big mouth, and uh, the, they elected me Chief Shop Steward for United Auto Workers Union, which was a big mistake on their part. <laughs> now, this is before the days when they, uh, when they uh, uh, had dues check off, when they deducted your union dues, in those days, you gave the union dues to the shop steward, me, and my job is to turn them. you heard me talk before)
1: way ahead of me (laughs) so I would go to the
0: bar you know with the union dues and to cash my check and uh, somehow I'd get the the union dues mixed up with my own money and then I go back to work on Monday and the guys would say where's my receipt I'd say the clerk at the union hall screwed up this went on for several weeks and these guys were not now these guys in those days were they, they, they were eloquent they were eloquent. There were there was about three categories of, of men that worked in automobile plants. There were Eastern European uh, uh, immigrants or first generation. And these guys were big and they didn't talk much. But so when they were unhappy, they let you know it. <laughs> and there were uh, uh, Appalachian whites, uh, typically wiry little guys from Kentucky and Tennessee who come to Detroit to get jobs. And they didn't talk much. When they were unhappy, they let you know it. And there were southern blacks. And uh, they didn't talk much. When they were unhappy, they let you know it. Now, one of the ways they let you know, they take your arm or your leg and put it across a curb. They jump on it. This kind of gets your attention, right? <laughs> so these guys finally concluded that I deserved that kind of uh, treatment. So I was afraid to go back to work. Uh, about the same time, I'd already get kicked out of college, or stopped going to college. My mother was getting fed up with my uh, shenanigans, you know. I'd worn out the thing, I'm a veteran. And uh, <laughs> she ordered me to leave. And so here I am in 19, 1947. I'm, I'm 20 years old. And my life, I think, is at an end. And I'm so full of despair that I did the only thing... That any reasonable person would do under the circumstances. I got drunk, <laughs> and uh, when I came to myself, I'm sitting alongside a railroad track, trying to get up enough nerve to jump in front of a train, and I didn't have enough nerve. And my next thought was, I started thinking about the Navy, and I, you know, I forgot about the being aboard the ships, being torpedoed, and other things. All I could think about was the camaraderie, and you know, so I said, I'll go back in the Navy. So I cleaned myself up, went down to the Navy recruiting station, and said to the Navy, I want to go back. And the Navy said, we'd love to have you back. But we've shrunk in size after the war, and you'll have to wait 30 days for us to find you a a billet. I couldn't wait 30 days. The Union members were looking for me. (laughs) Right across the hall, there's an Army recruiting station. And the Army recruiter says, we'll give you the equivalent rank. And you can be on a train for Fort Dix, New Jersey, tonight. I played hard to get for a couple of minutes and I joined the army for two years. And those two years stretched to ten. And during those ten years, my drinking really took off, and I began—I began the painful journey through hell on earth. And, you know, sometimes in telling our stories, or me telling mine, I concentrate so much on the events that I forget to tell you what's going on inside. I want you to know that I was in pain, folks. I was in pain. I was a walking sore. I was a walking wound. I hurt inside. I hurt inside. The only thing I knew to do was to get a drink. And I drank, and I You know, and I, I... I ran up credit. There were always people around Army bases that would give you credit. And payday would come, you had to pay them back. And because I got drunk, I could never remember how much I owed. And anything they said I owed, I had to pay. And they knew it because I couldn't afford to have my credit cut off. So I knew I was getting ripped off, but I had to keep those drinks coming. I had to keep those drinks coming. And uh, I remember uh, my... Uh, I had this quaint custom um, uh, when I drank of uh, wetting myself.
1: Uh,
0: very quaint custom.
1: God, don't let him sit there. <laughs>
0: People were, My nickname was Pissy Pete.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: you know, I, I can see myself now, you know, with my pants wet. Yeah. I, 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 this vignette, I think, kind of captures a whole lot of our experiences. It's Sunday morning in a southern army camp town, and uh, people are, you know, on the way to church, you know, mother and father and the children with their Sunday best, and they got their Bibles under their arms, and they're all looking all decent as only Christians can. And uh, <laughs> lurching, lurching down the sidewalk toward them is a soldier in a filthy khaki uniform, and uh, his eyes are bloodshot, look like maps, and his pants are wet, you know, and he's kind of staggering, trying to walk straight, and that soldier's me, of course, and as we approach each other, the father looks at me with, you know, he looks at me with contempt, and the, the mother looks at me with pity, and the children look at me with fear, and I am saying in my heart, don't you understand, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. But I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I, that scene must repeat repeated itself a million times. And I was so needy. I remember one time I was in uh, some army camp town, and somebody said, uh, Peter, uh, walk the bar. This bar was about as wide as from this, that wall to this wall. And I, we'll give you five bucks if you'll get up and walk from this part of the bar to the other end. I climbed up and walked the bar. As I walk, started walking across, I'm kicking people's drinks over in their laps. People don't like that. They really don't <laughs> like that. And, uh, and people started grabbing their beer bottles like clubs, you know, aiming for my testicles, you know, with these beer... <laughs> And, uh, but I made it to the other side of the bar, and the news got back to camp. Did you hear about that so-and-so, Peter Crawford? He walked out and walked the bar, and immediately I became a celebrity. People had never heard of such an insane act in their lives, and people were coming from miles around to look at me. I'm a mass of bruises, you know, and, um, my capacity for becoming a father was severely jeopardized. And, uh... And so then people started, I'd go to town and people would say, hey, Peter, walk the bar. And I was so needy, so much in need of approval and attention that I would climb up on the bar. Isn't that sad, isn't it, that I was that needy and desperate for attention and approval? And my drinking just continued on, continue on. I could just go on and on about things. And let's tell you one more thing. I um, was in this bar. A friend of mine and I had gotten transferred to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is the uh, home of the 82nd Airborne Division. And we were not airborne. We were just ordinary soldiers. And we were in this joint, and uh, we had a couple of the local bells, uh, and we were sitting there drinking, and it was getting near closing time, and things were going nicely. When the door flew open, and in walked two big, handsome paratroopers. And you know, paratroopers, they got these uh, wings on their chest, you know, and and they they got these four gears hanging on their shoulders, and they got these shiny boots, you know, and and uh, they make more money for jumping out of airplanes. That's very important. So when these guys walked in, these two local bills deserted us. Well, I I didn't care. I, I was you know just just passing fannies, right. So anyhow, uh, uh, <laughs> but my friend John T. Warren from Montgomery, Alabama was outraged. He was outraged. He said, Peter, we got to join the paratroopers. Now listen, I have no need to jump out of airplanes. (laughs) But I I need approval, right? I'm a people pleaser. So, you know, and we're just drinking anyhow, right? You'll forget tomorrow morning. I said, sure, John, we'll join the paratroopers. The next morning he didn't forget. So we go down to personnel and sign up. But I know I'm going to be right because I knew that the peer had more rigid physical examinations. One of the things that would disqualify you from being a peer was flat feet, and I have flat feet. So we get up, so we go for the physical eventually, and I go in to see this army doctor, and I get about as close to that army doctor as I am from this lady here, and he says, You pass. <laughs> Did anyone-
1: I said, what about my feet? <laughs> and he says, there's nothing
0: wrong with your feet. That's how I got down to Fort Benning, Georgia, in jump school.
1: <laughs>
0: and I made the required jumps. and Never going up in the airplane unless I was drunk. And finally the day came for the graduation jump, 600 feet. And they, as usual, assisted me out of the plane. The way they did that was like... Uh. And I hit the ground and people were coming up to congratulate us, and the very first person to congratulate me was my friend John Warren, who had flunked the physical. (laughs) It's not it's not easy being an alcoholic.
1: It's not easy. Yeah, it wasn't
0: long after that that uh and, and I, so I stayed at Fort Benning. Uh it wasn't long after that that I I had uh uh was I was very good at first impressions. Most alcoholics are, and I can make a tremendous first impression. You know, I, I my uniforms were tailored and, and I looked good as a soldier. I I was a good looking soldier. I had that bearing. You know, crispness, and yes yeah, certain, you're certain. And people God, that guy this guy is a soldier. This guy is a soldier. But then payday would come, and I'd get drunk, and I'd come back with my wet pants and, you know, lost part of my uniform, and they'd say, oh, oh. And then they'd and I'd go to the next outfit, and, and they would have heard of me by then, see. we heard this guy's got a problem. And, but I'd come in I, with my, you know, with my tailor-made uniform and my, yes sir, no sir, you know. And they say, well maybe they must they must have it wrong. This guy is a soldier. And then I would perform in such an outstanding manner, you know, for the first few weeks. You know, I would I just work I just never knew Peter, you, you can you can quit working the no, no sir, I we need to get this report out and uh I'll get this report for you, sir, so you can go play golf. You know, I Well, then pity would come. And I go out and do my number. Well, they wouldn't put me in jail because, you know, the guy couldn't play golf. They put me in jail. So I was getting away with murder. But in March of 1950, my, my belly button birthday is March 1st. On March 1st, 1950, I was 23 years old. It was my birthday. And it was Soldiers Payday. And I went downtown to Columbus and I got drunk and I got in several balls. And somewhere around the fourth or fifth of March, I got back to camp, and the commanding officer called me in, and this time, I knew from his demeanor that something had changed. And he said to me, "Peter, he said, "I have covered up for you, I've taken a lot of heat. I've been accused of favoritism. He said, "I can't stand that pressure." I' said, "Oh God." So he said, "But you know what?" He says, "I think you're an alcoholic." And uh well let me just digress. I because I read so much, I had read the famous nineteen forty one Saturday evening post article by Jack Alexander and I I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh I used to make jokes in the bar about I belong to Alcoholics Unanimous.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so when he mentioned he says, he says, you know, I heard about Alcoholics it, Anonymous downtown and I heard that they cure alcoholics. And I said, Sir, I've always wanted to go to AA. <laughs> well, you know, sister, I'm I my behinds in a crack, right? Oh, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, thank you. And he I was you know, giving him the I wanted to go to AA like you know, like I wanted to be an astronaut, you know. So anyhow, in due course, I end up down in Columbus, Georgia, at the AA meeting. This is March 1950. I don't know the precise date, but it was probably between the 5th and 10th of the month. And I show up at this AA meeting in Georgia. Uh, Those of you who have a little, who are long in the tooth, will remember that conditions for black people uh, were not that great in the South in 1950. And I showed up, and they had seen a lot of black drunks, but never seen a black alcoholic.
1: So when I walked in the meeting, <laughs>
0: so I walked in the meeting, they had to convene a group conscience, and they're all back there in the corner, you know, and they're so stationed in the group, is, you know, they're all trying to figure out what to do with this guy, you know, and uh, one guy summoned through the big book looking for, a, for an answer,
1: <laughs> I made
0: that up. But they're trying to figure out what to do, you know. And finally, the elder statesman comes up and he says, "Oh, boy, boy," he says. Uh, you know, uh, you you can't uh, you can't stay here. And I said to myself,
1: "That's great. I don't want to
0: be here anyhow. I just go back to camp and tell my commander they wouldn't let me in." And I started for the door. He said, "Wait a minute." He says, "On the other hand." So we can't throw you out either. But what they did, they put a chair in the doorway so that I was half in the meeting and half out. And that's how I was introduced to AA. And I sat in that chair for three months, from March 1950 to June 1950, 23 years old. And it was quite an experience. Quite an experience. I was not allowed to share and uh no one ever spoke to me uh so i but i uh, you know I also knew that I had to protect myself, so I memorized everything I memorized chapter five, you know uh I, I go back to camp, you know, and my commander would say, "Peter, how's that uh, cure coming?" and I'd say, the really hell we seen a person fail." he say, "Damn it, you're getting cured, all right." But these people with AA mean these are strange people. First of all, they were all old. Everybody there was at least forty. Well, I mean, I'm twenty-three, and nobody else under forty. And I figured, you know, these people have had their fun drinking. Now they got one foot in the grave.
1: You know, they're
0: trying to shape up so they can go to heaven.
1: Well, And these
0: people couldn't remember anything. They kept seeing the same things over and over again. (laughs) Easy does it, one day at a time. Don't take the first I said, What's wrong with these people? Can't they remember anything? (laughs) But the thing that really got me was this thing they had about gratitude. This is Gratitude Month, which is They would sit there and you know, a guy would say, My name is Charlie. And I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I knew for a fact that Charlie, had, that morning had repossessed his pickup truck. His wife was running around on him. His house was about to fall down. And he's at AA hey, meeting talking about I'm a grateful alcoholic. You know, come on now. Come on. You can't be wrapped too tight, right? And there's a woman over here who says... Uh, My name is Susie and I'm a grateful alcoholic And I knew for a fact That she had a severely Retarded child at home And I knew that her husband Used to beat up on her And I knew that uh, there wasn't Too much food in that house Yet here she was at an AA meeting Saying I'm a grateful Alcoholic You know come on These people are really sickos And here I am You know now, the interesting thing is, these people, because of my c- color of my skin, they thought they were better than I was. But I thought I was better than they were. So, and both of us were wrong. Anyhow, the uh, 25th of June, 1950, the Korean War broke out. My commanding officer got his orders to go to Korea. And that was my Emancipation Proclamation because I no longer had to go to AA. And I said AA
1: <laughs>
0: and they cheerfully refunded me my misery. And for the next six years I, my drinking got worse. I ended up in Korea myself and got banged up. And then I uh, came back to the States for a short while and then I went to Germany and uh, in 1953 and and during that time uh, tour, my drinking got into really high speed. And I said that I was a sore, a raw sore. I was in pain, folks. I was having blackouts. I was having blackouts. One day, I had an office job in Stuttgart. And, uh, and I came. I woke up one morning and I said, God, I didn't go to work yesterday. And I lay there a long time trying to think of a lie I could tell the boss, and I of this elaborate lie, and I went back, went in that that morning in my best uniform, you know, tailor-made uniform. I'd use the murine, and I'd use the, uh, uh, you know, the the sin -sin and the, the chlorophyll chewing gum, the whole routine, and I went in and I laid this lie on the man about why I wasn't there yesterday, and he looked at me very strangely while I was talking. Then he said, he pulled out this memo, he said, but you were here yesterday. He showed me this memo I'd written. This was the beginning of the end, folks. I'd experienced a blackout. And the pain intensified. The pain, I couldn't open a letter because there was going to be bad news in it. You know, I couldn't answer a telephone because there's going to be bad news. I I, I was just raw. And finally one day they, they came to me and they said, Peter, you know, Your military service is interfering with your drinking. And and we're going to put an end to that. And we want your resignation. And so I resigned, and they sent me home to Detroit again, where I left 10 years earlier to get my act together. And I got back to to Detroit, and I'm back home to mother. She let me in. And I was home only a few days before I met a young woman that I had known many, many years ago when she was just a little, tiny girl. And back when five years, difference in age been a lot. But now, you know, she's a, a grown woman. And I looked at her and I she thought she was the most gorgeous woman I had ever seen in my life. I mean, she was just beautiful. Just beautiful. She just epitomized everything that I ever wanted to see in a woman. She was she was God, I can't see it. She was just gorgeous. And I don't mean that in a sex uh uh pot way. She was just gorgeous. She just had a bearing and she looked she just looked pure and and upstanding and, and clean and wholesome and all these other things. It's interesting her perception of herself was that she was a fox. <laughs>
1: And then it's interesting
0: the interesting the different different perceptions people have. Anyhow, anyhow, her name was Dawn. Her name was Dawn, and I fell in love with the idea of being in love. Fell in love with the idea of being in love, and and for five months I was talking space doctor, I was talking Martian, and uh, used up all my best material trying to impress this woman. And after five months, you know, she and I uh, eloped to Toledo, Ohio, and got married in February of 1956. And uh, she, uh, 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 the next day, there was a big explosion in downtown Toledo. town blew up. I always thought there was some connection.
1: <laughs> but anyhow,
0: uh, I had been told in the Army that I uh, was sterile because of chemicals and so forth. Well, nine months after we were married, uh, she had to go to the hospital. During the nine months, it was very difficult for me I assure you, during the pregnancy. Very difficult pregnancy for me. I had morning sickness every morning. <laughs> and, uh, so, but eventually the time came, and I took her to the hospital, and, and the doctor said, it's going to be a while yet. And she said, honey, go call the relatives. And I went down to use the phone, and there was no phone available. And so I went down the street to the bar to use the telephone. And uh, four days later, four days later, I showed up at the hospital. And I had left this young woman, frightened young woman in the hospital with a beautiful baby girl whose name was Lisa. And uh, through the grace of God, uh, Dawn didn't throw me out and I took her and the baby back home to this little apartment, and I became a model husband. I took an inventory. I took an inventory for the first time and decided that I had a problem, and I was going to solve the problem. How's that? <laughs> and I went around and poured out all the booze. Oh, God, I hurt. And I was a model husband for three weeks. I was getting up, you know, I was getting up, you know, feeding the baby, and, I was washing diapers. We couldn't afford a diaper service, so I'd get up. I was washing diapers, and you know, all, all very surely. You know, you, you got, you have to make sure people notice you. When you know, when you're doing good stuff, right? You know, an alcoholic knows never do good stuff unless you're noticed. So I made sure I was noticed. You know, you want me to wash those diapers, honey? Well, I mean, the diaper pill is overflowing, right? What else is there to do but wash them?
1: Or people come over.
0: Excuse me. I was up half the night feeding the baby. Oh yeah. In case anyone didn't know that, you know, I want to make you. Anyhow, this went on for three weeks and on the nineteenth of December nineteen fifty-six I came downstairs to the mailbox and there was a government check in the box. I'd gone back to college under the GI Bill. And this was a check for subsistence. And it's so the nineteenth of December. And, you know, we'll be hiding in the rent, right? And the baby needs stuff, and Dawn needs stuff. But I said, wait a minute, 19th of December, that's Christmas of next week. I won't tell Dawn I've got this check. What I'll do is go downtown and give her and Lisa the biggest Christmas they ever had. And I went downtown uh, to get the, you know, Christmas, and it started raining. And I ducked into a bar. And uh, about three days later, I came home to the snowflakes. I remember this just so vividly. Uh, you know, the Christmas lights, and snowflakes, and my pants were wet. Very wet. Came back to the little apartment. There wasn't much food in the house. It was a very frightened dawn with this new baby. And all of a sudden, I remembered this place where I'd been six years earlier in Columbus, Georgia. And it occurred to me that even though these people were not wrapped too tight, they were sober. They were sober. And then I thought, well, I don't want to go through that rejection and embarrassment again. If I call them, maybe i will make me sit in the door again. And I thought about it, and I said, well... Even if I had to sit in the door again, at least I'll be alive. So I reached for the phone, and I called AA. And it seemed like only a couple of minutes before there were two men on my doorstep bringing me hope. One of those men became my sponsor, a man named Carl. And they told me, good. they brought me the good news. They brought me the good news. They said, it is possible for you, as low as you are, become whole again they told me that it is possible for you to put that bottle down it is possible for you to gain through this fellowship sufficient grace that will overcome the pain of living that you can live again let me tell you something folks that was that was an important important day in my life. Do you hear what I'm saying? That was an important day in my life. And then they said, you want to go to a meeting? And I said, well, I can't go to a meeting because this pair of pants is standing up in the corner. That's the only pair of pants I got. And uh, I remember what Carl said. He said, if you want to be sober more than you want to be drunk, you climb in those pants and come with me. And so I climbed in those pants And they took me to a meeting at the old 12-step group in Detroit on West Grand Boulevard in the shadow of the Ambassador Bridge to Canada. And I walked into that uh, room, very cold night, very warm in the room. You can imagine what I smell like with those pants on. But you know what? A most astonishing thing happened. People came to me with their arms outstretched. They said, we're so glad to have you, and we? And we, we want to see you re- get in the process of recovery. And they told me the same thing that I started out this meeting saying to you. That God loves you. God loves you. God wants you to become all you can become. Because you have a gift and you have a story to tell that you need to share with the world that it is possible that through these steps you can experience recovery. That's what this thing is all about. That's what this thing is all about. Let me just just close by telling you I've been up here too long and I apologize. Uh, I started out talking about self. Self. The uh, third step prayer has a line that says relieve me of the bondage of self so that I may better do thy will. That line is so important to me. So important. Because that summarizes in a nutshell what it's all about for me. It's not alcohol itself. It's me that's the problem, right? I'm the person that that line was written about. I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. You know? <laughs> that was written about me.
1: Uh,
0: I was. We were living in upstate New York. And I was working for General. I was working for General Electric in a management role, and Union College in Connecticut. I was very active in the community, and I'd been to program about. At time, about 15 years. And uh, uh, this college, Union College, one of the select colleges, had a program called Upward Bound. And they borrowed me from General Electric for a year. And uh, uh, anyone who ever heard of Upward Bound? Oh, good. Good. So uh, uh, I of with young people who were... Uh, most of those kids, by the way, were candid, would, would have fit into your adulting group. Most of them would have. And they were white, black, Asian, Hispanic, uh, American Indians. They were just a wonderful group of kids. Many of them had wrapped sheets a mile long. They they really seemed, but they all had potential. They all had potential. That was of all the jobs I ever had in my life. I think that was probably the most rewarding. Anyhow, uh, we were funded by the government, and it was not enough money to do all the things I thought we should do. So I would uh, go out in a community and lecture at churches and service groups, Kiwanis and Rotary, to get extra money so we'd have more things to do. And we could take the kids to uh, Saratoga to the Performing Arts Center and um, Man in, and His World in, in uh, Montreal. Uh, anyhow, uh, so I had, well, I had this slush fund available. Because, and some kid would always need shoes or something, right? So anyhow, we, the, the kids would come on campus in the summertime. I had college students as counselors. In this particular uh, summer, the kids came on campus, and a counselor came to me and said, "Mr. Crawford, Phyllis doesn't have any clothes other than what's on her back." Phyllis was a little blue-eyed blonde girl, very, very bright. Came from a, a, an alcoholic family and had been abused something awful. So. This is the kind of thing my spouse fund was for, right? So I went in my stress fund, gave the counselor some money. The counselor took Phyllis over to Kmart. The next day, Phyllis showed up at my office. She, her hair had been shampooed, and she had a new outfit on from head to toe. She just looked wonderful. The counselor had all the money I'd give her. I bought her about four or five changes and here's Phyllis over to show me what you know how nice you look. And she said, Mr. Crawford, I just wanted to thank you for what you did for me. Now remember I got fifteen years in this fellowship, right? And I said, Well, Phyllis, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. She said, But you don't understand, she says, no one has ever been this nice to me before and I said well Phyllis it's okay I said I'm just glad we were able to do it you know and I'm getting embarrassed I'm getting embarrassed and she said but Mr. Crawford you know I have to make you understand how much this means to me and finally I blurted out because I was so embarrassed I said Phyllis I was just doing my job and when I said that Her face crumbled up like a Kleenex. face just crumbled up. And she said, Mr. Crawford, I thought you were doing it for me. I thought you were doing it for me. And immediately, immediately I understood. I understood that when she was expressing that gratitude to me, She wasn't expressing gratitude to me. She was expressing gratitude to the higher power that flows through me. Not to Peter Crawford. And me with my limited self and my ego and my self-absorption could not understand. I thought that I was the center of the universe and she was thanking me. She was thanking God for what God it provided through me. And I begin the process of making amends to her. Setting things right. Setting things right. One of the things I've, I've learned in this program, I could talk on a couple more hours, but I'm not <laughs> going to do it. I'm not going to do it because, uh, but let me just assure you how grateful I am. Do I have time for one more story? Just one more? I love to t- I'll tell this one. So much, and I get, I get, I, I impose on people. You know, I, I I talk about my coming through Maryland, where my forebears, my mother's side, came from. On my father's side, uh, they were. My father grew up in Mississippi, and during the Depression, they used to take me, us kids, down to Mississippi because we could eat. You know, they had chickens running around and. In a big garden, and in the 1930s, this was really hot stuff, you know. So we got in Mississippi, we were going to eat, and we would see Grandma Catherine, my grandma. And Grandma Catherine was born a slave, and she did not know how old she was because they didn't keep records, but she could remember the day that the Union Army came through Mississippi, and they told her she was free and if she would tell this story she would just become radiant she would just become radiant and when she would begin to, to sing this old this old spiritual and one of the verses of the spiritual says just when I thought that all was lost my dungeon shook and my chains fell off. I submit to you, whether you're AA, Alateen, Alanon, in between, whatever, through these 12 suggested steps, your chains can fall off. You can be relieved of the bondage itself and you can experience joy. Isn't that good news?